Welcome to the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast. Today's is a special edition on quality of life. We're joined by Utsana Tonmuka Yokol and Elena Swift, who are doing their PhDs in quality of life. They join us today to talk about their projects. I'm Elena Swift. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, and I'm doing a research project looking at the quality of life of children with cerebral palsy from their perspective and their parents and how we can measure it. I'm Utsana Tamukayakun. I'm doing a PhD from Deakin University. I'm doing a research around the quality of life measurement in children with cerebral palsy for economy evaluation. So we might start off by asking the simple question of what is quality of life? Oh, that is a really simple question, but I think it's a little bit tricky to answer because different people, they have different um, perception, different understanding and their own definitions of what is the quality of life. If you ask me, I might think that quality of life personally is being healthy in physical, in mental and in social living and everything. But some people, they might think about, oh, well, the safety, the social coherence and living in the environment that safe. For them. If you ask economics in general, they might think that, okay, it might be something that can allow people to produce and uh, contribute to the productivity. Yeah, so we also often use quality of life interchangeably with terms like life satisfaction or well-being or happiness. And there's several definitions of quality of life that take those things into account and what Utsana mentioned. Mm-hmm. So the general definition would be that it is multifaceted. It covers many different domains of life, such as your social life or your physical well-being or your safety or your environment, and that it's subjective. So it's from your own perspective, from your own point of view in relation to other people around you. Well, it is quite interesting that the quality of life has been mentioned and being used recently. And sometimes it is used interchangeably with other terms as well. For example, well-being, as what Elena just touched on, or life satisfaction or happiness. And just backtrack a little bit how these terms, quality of life, becomes really used. It has been already discussed in the medical literature um, since 1960s already because back then the medical treatment doesn't really aim to um, prevent someone from death but also improve the well-being from the life that they have until they, they passed. There's some other things as well like try to provide the longevity of the people from the treatment. And there are some uh, medical aims to achieve, especially for the people who have chronic illness or probably um, with disability. So not just only have them to have a perfect health, but will help them to have the full health for the rest of their life. That is the main thing. So that's why the quality of life becomes more of interest in the medical field since then. So has the way people use the term quality of life changed since the 1960s? Not in the health-related quality of life as much, but as we mentioned earlier, that different people, they have different definitions of the term quality of life. So that might be slightly different, and we found it is quite difficult to find an agreed definition. The um, World Health Organization has a definition which is now commonly used in the literature, but they didn't actually publish that until the mid-90s. So up until that point, people often studying quality of life in a similar way but there wasn't, and there still isn't necessarily one true definition of what it is. It depends how people interpret that. Mm. So there is also in medical literature, sometimes people refer specifically to health related quality of life, which is really much more around physical well-being as opposed to overall quality of life, which then takes into account other factors outside of health. 
And what is the World Health Organization definition of quality of life? So the direct quote is that it's an individual's perception of their position in life in the context of the culture and value systems in which they live and in relation to their goals, expectations, standards and concerns. So it is really that idea of it being one person's subjective interpretation of how well they're doing in various areas of their life in relation to other people around them. So that's a bit different than the health-related quality of life. Yeah, so health-related quality of life would be the same, that same concept, but specifically in relation to health. So it would be more focused on physical well-being and functioning and aspects of your personal health rather than other things. So, for example, your social relationships or um, maybe your career aspirations, if they're not related to health, and they tend not to be included in that. Mm. definition. Yeah, and I think it's quite interesting as well with this definition because in disability area, say with the WHO themselves, they have the classification of the functioning, which mm-hmm. is the International Classification of Functioning, ICF, and then they do take into account of the social and environment factor that would contribute to the person well-being too. So it's a little bit difficult in terms of like all these are overlapping, mm-hmm. but in which extent you can't really tap into that boundary, yeah, yeah, because you are confined pretty much with what is the health-related quality of life. Depends on how you interpret it as well. If you're looking for the functioning, it's just the functioning, or are you looking for the capability? Or are you looking about how people feel about how they function rather than their actual functioning level? So it's a lot that we can talk about, and that is why we decided to spend more than three years at least (laughs) on our PhD, and we tried to finish it within three years. So why is quality of life measurement particularly important for people with cerebral palsy? Cerebral palsy, as I think our listeners will know, is a permanent condition. So it's when you talk about treatment for cerebral palsy, a lot of it is not necessarily about cure. Obviously, we're striving to improve functioning and decrease pain and discomfort. But this is where a lot of medical treatments in healthcare is really focused on maximizing someone's ability to enjoy their life in many different aspects rather than necessarily getting them to a normal level of functioning. So then quality of life is a really important uh, concept because it's about how somebody feels about how well they're doing their life and how they how satisfied they are with the different areas in their life. It's a measurement unit that can capture a broad range of life, not just yeah. only the functioning. And does it vary according to what's important to the person? Mm. It can do, yeah. Because that is in the definition, it should be part of it and specifically in terms of measurement because measures are usually developed from the perspective of the the people who will be answering them that's built into what you measure but then you could also consider it from the point of view of saying well how are you doing in these different areas and which area of life actually matters to you the most Mm. so how you interpret that as well can take that into account. But the thing is in people with cerebral palsy that might be a little bit challenging because some of the um the population in this group, they have the communication limitation or probably the language impairment. So it's really difficult to ask and explore what exactly mm-hmm. um, the domains that would impact their quality of life. So most of the time we may need to ask the people who surrounding them, for example, their parents, their carers, to basically ask their opinions and information on their behalf mm-hmm. of what would be yeah, the aspect that they think it's important. Yeah, so as Otsana said, wherever possible, we would ask the person directly, but for young children as mm-hmm. well who aren't able to think about those kind of concepts so much or maybe aren't able to tell you 
then you would ask the parents or carers or their primary caregivers. And then the other aspect that we haven't talked about with cerebral palsy and in terms of healthcare is the cost of healthcare. So then that's where economic quality of life becomes really important. Well, I'm from the background of health economics, so I'm looking at the um, the cost of the intervention. And we know that um, in the interventions for um, people with cerebral palsy, there are a wide range of it. Start from the early prevention, early um, diagnosis, up to the rehabilitation. So we know that we have limited budget and we can't afford every intervention. So in some extent, we need to make a decision on which intervention that we need to pay for. And that's why health economics is a really useful discipline because it can analyse the data and provide the information on which intervention is worth for the value of money. By doing that, so um, we need to get the outcome measurement right like measuring what would be a good impact or the benefit. Quality of life is one of them, and it has been used in other areas as well. And even in Australia, at the national level, like the PBAC, Pharmaceutical Benefit Advisory Scheme, or the Medical um, Benefit Advisory Scheme, they also use the quality adjusted life years as a standard um, outcome measures. So they can compare so many interventions all together. The thing is, in cerebral palsy area, there are not much study looking in the outcome measurements for the economic use. So that's why my topic PhD project is around this in particular. Yeah, and just a bit of the info. There is a recent economic report published in 2017. They said that there is an estimated total health expenditure for cerebral palsy is around 40.5 million per annum. And 43% of this was government funded for medical and pharmaceutical products or services. And why is it important to measure quality of life? So as we mentioned, it's really important for directing healthcare or medical interventions or deciding which ones are actually making a difference to people's lives or how we're going to pay for them. And if you want to do that, then you really need to have a standardised measure like Utsana mentioned, the quality adjusted life years, or for non-economic overall quality of life, we have other measures so that we can compare those. And then you can use those measures to target interventions that are most meaningful to the people who are receiving them, either from their perspective or for clinicians to use them or for health services or for research. And it can be used as a monitoring as well on the project from clinician perspective, whether the service that they have provided is good and improve people's quality of life especially their clients or their patients, right? There might be another use as well, um, for example, like opening the conversation. Mm, like, yeah. okay, how are you today and so on and so forth. There are so many quality of life instruments that can be quite lengthy or mm-hmm. sometimes it's quite short as well. Like the simple question that we ask others every morning, like how are you today or how you feel? Yeah, how do you feel? So, yeah, it can be a start of the conversation too. And what measures do we use currently? There's different types of measures. So apart from um, general ones or economic ones, there's also ones that are designed for anybody. So they're called generic measures. And then there's ones that are designed specifically for people with chronic illness or disability, and they're known as chronic generic instruments. Well, there's those that are designed specifically for people with a certain condition. So they're condition-specific instruments. So we have... There's currently four published 
condition-specific measures for children with cerebral palsy that have different focuses and developed by different people, which are used in research more than anything else. I think they're sometimes used in clinical settings as well, but that's what we're currently using in cerebral palsy. Yeah, for health economics, we don't have any cerebral palsy-specific one. We have the quality of life for general conditions. So it means that if you have allergy, you can still use that tools. If you have like broken arms or broken legs, you still use that tools in order to get the quality of life measure. And then most of the time, researchers are finding that the general one, it has its own purpose in order to allow a comparison across different conditions, but it hits another issue as well because it is so generalized and it might contain the questions that are not important for the people who have a specific condition. For example, with the walking or mobility or the intellectual disability, if they don't have that questions included in general quality of life instrument, so we can't really measure the impact related to that. Yeah, so then the point of having the condition-specific measures is that they're more sensitive and they contain additional information of things that might be really relevant. So, for example, a general measure maybe doesn't ask about something which really matters if you're using a wheelchair a lot, if it doesn't ask about how well you can get around in environments mm-hmm. and that matters if you have mobility issues, then that's information that we really need on a condition-specific measure. This term, quality-adjusted life year, can you explain what you mean by that? Quality-adjusted life years is basically they just want to measure the quality of life in terms of well-being year. For example, if you're healthy, you don't have any condition at all, you live for one year, that is one year being healthy, right? But if you, in some extent, being impacted by, let's say, allergy, and then your quality of life is not in a full health, So let's say it might be around 0.8 or 80% of your full health. So it means if you live in one year, your quality adjusted life year is equal to 0.8 years. And how is that number calculated? In health economics, right, we use different things. That's why sometimes we need to use different instruments from the other quality of life that the clinicians would probably use because we would like to get the weight. And then we would ask populations in general on what would they prefer and keep the ranking of if they have such and such conditions, how much likely they would like to keep the weight out of one. So if the one is equal to full health, if you have a condition like allergy, or hair fever, you might give like 0.9, you might give 0.7, you might give 0.6, and then we get the average of the population and value by that sense. So how many people were used to develop that scale? We need a lot, actually. But before doing that, we need to get a description first. Because if I say hair fever, right, you might have in your mind that hair fever is having a stuffy nose. But you may have another state as well if you have like a severe um, hair fever. So we need to get the description quite right and make it clear description. So when we talk about the hair fever, this is the condition that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And what would you think about it? How many weight or how many score that you would like to put in this particular description? To develop this measure... Mm. How many people contributed to the weighting to to reach the average? A minimum, right? It could be 200 or 300. depends on how many health states description that you can bring up. Yeah, if you ask actually 
everyone on average what their quality of life is. I don't know if it's the same on economic measures, but in on general quality of life, people usually hover around 75%. That's I think 75 to 80% at a population level is about where most people in, yeah. in Australia. I don't really know from the top of my head, but I think roughly the same, around yeah. 0.8, 0.9. I think yeah. not just Australia. In most, I'm going to say developed countries because mm-hmm. I'm not sure about developing countries. Mm. But, yeah, this is the human race averages <laughs> about yeah. that level of life satisfaction and happiness. And it is really interesting as well because we just talk about the score of quality of life. There is a previous study talking about the quality of life of the population with cerebral palsy. They asked parents of the children with cerebral palsy and also asked the kids with cerebral palsy themselves. It is quite interesting that the parents think that the quality of life score of the kids with cerebral palsy is a little bit low, especially on the functioning and physical well-being. But the kids themselves, they have pretty much exactly the same quality of life score with general kids. Yeah, with really? children who don't yep. have cerebral palsy. So their parents tend to rate them lower than they rate themselves. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, but it's a not always clear. It tends to vary a little bit with research. But yeah, there's not 100% agreement between what parents think their children think about their lives and what children think, which is not really that surprising. But the trend for parents to rate children with cerebral palsy is slightly lower in their quality of life than children rate themselves is... Mm. Consistent. Mm. Somewhat consistent, yeah. Mm. Yeah, which then (laughs) kind of raises a little bit of a question about how quality-adjusted life years are calculated as well because often you describe a health state and ask people how bad they think that is. But if you're asking about a chronic health condition... And you're asking people who don't have the health condition, are they then rating it more harshly than people living with the condition as well? Mm. Yeah. This is why that methodology is more complicated than it sounds initially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the healthy people who do these scales? It's often both, I think. Mm. What's Anna? You just asked me earlier about who's going to give that weight, right? Um, there's still a debate. Who would give that weight? Mm. The first school of thought is asking the people who have that condition because they would know well what would impact it on their life because they have that condition and they have been living in that condition. But again, another people say, well, at the end, the result of the quality-adjusted life years is going to use for making decisions related to the general public money which is the tax income most likely, especially Mm. in Australia where we have the Medicare and then most of the service is um, subsidised by the government. So it's supposed to give the value of the general population yeah, rather than the people with condition. And there is also an argument saying that, well, if we ask the people with, with the condition or probably their parents or their carers, they might give the weight slightly lower because they can see the impact very clearly why the general population, even you provide quite a good description of um, what would be likely the condition that people is going to be impacted on, they would not get a clear sense of how would it feel. So it's a pro and cons out there. So at the moment, there is no clear final decision, but it tends to use the general public opinion rather than the people with the um, condition itself. So you've talked a lot about how quality of life matters to healthcare. Is there any way of knowing how healthcare changes quality of life? We know that it has been used extensively for the clinicians and also um, the research. research, but we don't really know in terms of the service management. 
it has been used or not. Because at the moment, there is more like a new way of thinking of looking at the patient-based outcome measure, and quality of life might be another potential outcome of measurement. And basically, we don't really take into account of how. We can implement that and then make it useful for the management perspective. Yeah. So as well as the differences between general and economic measures of quality of life, mm-hmm. for example, there's often differences in how you would measure quality of life depending on what purpose you have it for. So if you're doing a research measure, you might want it to be really detailed and it might be quite long. But mm-hmm. if you're using that in a clinical context where you are only seeing people for a really short period of time, then you don't want to use a measure that takes a half an hour to. That's just not going to be used. It's not very useful. So then you might go back to one of those really simple measures that's much more like "How are you?" And we don't necessarily know mm. which is the best measure. It really depends on the situation, and we don't have one single measure that would be considered a gold standard, mm. either in quality of life generally or specifically for children with cerebral palsy. So, um, not having the gold standard is. Difficult for the researcher as well because once we have like four or probably more than two instruments available out there, we don't really know which one is the best because we don't have anything to compare against. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's a bit complicated out there. And, and then because they do vary in their purpose, and because the definition of quality of life is so broad, so some measures that are known as quality of life measures focus a lot more on functioning or health status, mm-hmm. even more so than just the idea of health-related quality of life. Or they might focus on what's important to people caring for them rather than what is actually important to the people with the cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. So it's. Sort of a question around what's the most useful for a situation and what is the single best measure, mm. if that even exists. And they vary according to research or clinical purposes. They can do. The ones that we currently have for cerebral palsy would be used in the same for clinical or research purposes, which may mean that they're more general and less sensitive or less specific than they could be. Mm-hmm. So. You really, if you have a particular purpose in mind for a measure, then it is important to look at the measures available and consider how well they suit what you want to measure it for. So I think one of the things that we know is that there's a lot that we don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's lucky that you're both doing your PhDs in this area, then. Mm-hmm. So what don't we know? My PhD is looking at uh, one particular measure of quality of life, the CP Qual, which was developed in Australia. A little more than 10 years ago, and it is one of the ones which is quite long. It takes about a half an hour to complete, but it does have a version for parents or carers of children with cerebral palsy, and one for children themselves to complete. So the main question that I'm looking at is whether that's changed, whether things have changed for children, and what's important to their quality of life in the last 10 to 12 years, and. If we want to make that a shorter measure that would be particularly useful clinically, what should go on that measure rather than what's on it now? So that's the question that I've been trying to answer by interviewing children with cerebral palsy and their parents and figuring out what are the most important things to them and their quality of life. We can measure the quality of life, right? And if the interventions works well, so we would assume that we see the change in terms of the quality of life. Let's say from the score two to three, or probably from eight to nine. So you can see it's improved by one unit 
of the score, but we don't really know whether the two to three is more important than the nine, um, eight to nine, and what is the clinical meaningful in order to get one unit of the quality of life improved. What does that mean clinically? Yeah, we still don't know. We don't really have enough information over longer periods of time mm. for what people's quality of life scores are like. Most of the measures of quality of life that exist, including those in cerebral palsy, haven't been validated to show that they're sensitive to change. So we know that they measure it well at one point, but we don't know if it changes later. Is that because of the measure? Or is it because the quality of life has changed? And one of the problems in cerebral palsy is that they, so these measures have been used a lot in research and in clinical trials, but they frequently show at the end of the research or at the end of the intervention there isn't a change on quality of life. And we don't really know why that is, whether it's just because the tools are too general and the interventions are really specific if we're not actually making change to quality of life or is it because the measures aren't sensitive enough. So that's a really big question yeah. in this field. Especially in the adolescent group, yeah, because there are so many changes in terms of their physical and also their social engagement as well. They might enter to school and then get participating with other friends and that sort of thing. So that that might have an impact on their quality of life too. So there are still so many things that we don't know. And what are the take-home messages from today? I guess the first one is that quality of life is a really valuable measure in many contexts and in many ways. So you can start a conversation about what's important to someone. You can use it to check whether your healthcare interventions are making a difference. You can use it to direct research and healthcare and healthcare spending for anyone and specifically for children and adults with CP. And we don't have a gold standard measure for that yet. And we still don't really have a clear understanding of how clinical practice would impact the quality of life. Still have a lot to study and explore. I yeah. Think. And another one thing is about the generic and also um, condition-specific instrument. We're still exploring whether we can use a generic quality of life instrument in the people with cerebral palsy or we should use for the specific one. But again, it depends on what is actually your purpose of measuring the quality of life, not just only looking at um, what the change that you would like to see and you need to make sure that those aspects is well captured in the instrument that you use, but you also um, want to ask another question as well, whether at the end of the day, would you like to compare your results within the intervention from the people having similar conditions or would you like to make it comparison with different groups? Different interventions targeting different functioning or different conditions entirely. It's all things that you need to take into account before you choose which instrument you should use. So you're both doing your PhD in developing a measure. Will this measure be available for use soon? Hopefully at some point. I think one of the ultimate goals of both our projects will be to develop one new revised measure that will take into account perspectives of children and their parents and have an economic element, but that will be probably a couple of years away. So mm. you've combined to create one? Um, not we at hope this to stage. do so. <laughs> not, not at this stage, but we have been discussed among the two of us because Elena is looking for the shorter version and probably a new domain that would matter for the quality of life. And we see maybe it is our postdoc. Um, project, but let us finish PhD first. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> yes, we can absolutely do that. Yeah. One quality of life measure to rule them all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much, Elena and Utsana, for joining us. And thank you for listening to today's edition of the Centre for Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast. To find out more about our research, visit our website at cerecp.org.au.